The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 20. And our subject this morning is the last commandment in the list of what the Hebrews called the ten words that were given to Israel. This is the last of God's moral law for his people. And this commandment is the sum of the second table of the law, which emphasizes love for our neighbor. And though you might not recognize it at first, this is the chief of the six commandments that end the law, and this is the chief one because it summarizes the the motivation that leads us into sin. Now the command is found in verse number 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, or his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now you see that the key word of the commandment is covet, thou shalt not covet. And that's a word that's translated uh, various other ways in the Bible as desire, also translated as lust. And by a little bit harder word, concupiscence, which is an old English word that you don't hear any longer. Uh, I don't think you would, probably wouldn't see it anywhere except in the King James Bible. And so there are many people that don't understand concupiscence and the modern translations then substitute the word covetousness there or sometimes lustful passion or evil desire. Now another way that we can say this command is thou shalt not delight in, which means an evil delight, and it means to obsessively crave what belongs to your neighbor. Covet is not often used in a good sense, but sometimes it is. And in the next message, we're going to discuss the good sense of this word and what the Bible says that you should covet, things that you should desire. And so by itself, the word covet is is neither good nor evil, but it is the thing that is desired, the thing that is the motivation behind that desire that determines whether it is good or evil. In the 17th verse, here it's used negatively, and so it stands for a destructive desire. The difference in this command and those that come before it is the victim. Now, initially, the victim is the person who covets, which tells us that this is internal or it's only the person himself. Each of the commandments does have an inward focus, but also each has an outward focus. So you go down the list of the first four commandments, and they begin inwardly. They begin with what you believe, and then they show up outwardly in your actions. For instance, if you don't worship the true God, then it will show up in the worship of an idol. If you don't respect God's name, it will show up in cursing and blasphemy. If you don't honor the Sabbath day, then people will see you in other places on Sunday and not in church. In the hour of worship, you'll be someplace else. You will not worship, but instead you'll use God's day for yourself. Now, likewise, in the second half of the commandments, if you kill someone, the evidence of that's going to be external. There will be a body, a dead body somewhere. If you commit adultery, 
the external act may end up in divorce court. If you steal, then somebody misses what they've worked for. And so in each of those things, there's a victim of a crime, there's evidence of an action, and there's also a penalty that must be paid. But when we come to this 10th commandment, covetousness is different because covetousness deals with the sinful state of the mind before the action is taken. And so you can't see it, and you can't pin it on somebody who's guilty, and you can search every civil law there is, and you're not going to find one that says, this is the penalty for covetousness. Now, for murder, yes, there is one. For stealing, yes, there is a penalty. But covetousness doesn't work that way. There isn't anyone who's charged with this sin. There is no one who's convicted of it because he has the wrong desires. And this is because nobody can see the heart. Nobody knows the desires. And yet the cause of every moral failure and of every evil action is covetousness. Eventually, it will be found out. It'll be known that it was in your heart when that desire works its way out and then turns into harm for others. But initially, the victim of this is only the person himself. It is an internal sin. Now, God sums up his law then with an internal problem that leads to the outward commission of sin. And that's where we want to focus the exposition of the commandment this morning. We're going to talk about the cause of covetousness, and the cause of it is the heart. The cause of covetousness is the heart. A Puritan divine wrote, For since God had in other commandments forbidden the acts of sin against our neighbor, he well knew that the best means to keep men from continuing sin in act would be to keep them from desiring it in the heart. And then, for he who is a spirit imposeth the law on our spirits and forbids us to covet what before he had forbidden to perpetrate. Our church loves to study the Bible. This is one of the reasons that I really love to pastor this church. People here love the Bible. And the Bible is the focus of our worship services. And this is why we begin worship services with the reading of the Bible. So we call the assembly to worship with Bible reading. And there are many good reasons for Bible study. But one of my favorites is as we go through the Word of God, we see how the wisdom of God is placed strategically throughout the different books of the Bible. God's precepts are commanded, and then the Bible begins to show us the reason that God, for many things that God does, the reason why he did these things. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained that the thoughts of the heart can be our intentions, and they are sin, intentions to sin, before they actually become the act. He said, if you lust, then you have committed adultery in your heart. In Matthew 5:28, he said, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And lust, in our translation, comes from the same root word as covet. Jesus said, Hatred in the heart is a sin that takes place there. Or hatred is a sin that takes place in, in the heart before the deed is done. And as we read the Ten Commandments, we don't actually recognize this because there isn't anything in the commandment that deals with the heart. You, never in the Ten Commandments do you see anything that has to do with the person's heart. We determine sin by outward acts. And the Jews did the same thing. And so what they, what they did was to miss 
the application of the law, and they concluded that since they weren't guilty in many of the outward acts that the law condemns, then they're just not guilty. And Jesus explained they couldn't claim righteousness because their hearts were full of wicked imaginations. And with his choice of the word lust in Matthew 5.28, he actually brought the Pharisees in contact with this Ten Commandment. They come face to face with the Ten Commandment that they had not kept. And there Jesus tells us that although heart is not seen in the Ten Commandments, heart is certainly an issue behind all of them. And so in God's wisdom, he included a last commandment intended to stop sin before it becomes a thought that expresses itself in an action. And so the last commandment is the one that is aimed directly at the heart. That's the secret part that nobody sees. Nobody knows about this but you and God. And for this reason, there aren't any civil laws against it. Nobody knows. Nobody sees it. Nobody can judge it. There is not a court of law that considers it. It's unknown until it comes out and shows itself in acts. And then others know that it was there. So it's the acts that are judged. The murder, the adultery, theft, and so on. But this commandment does not tackle the act. Instead, it said it goes to the inception of all of these sins. So this Puritan divine eloquently said, God well knew that the best means to keep men from committing sin in the act would be to keep them from desiring it in the heart. Now, we're not nearly as eloquent as Puritan divines. And so we say this in a different way. In the immortal words of Barney Fife, we say, nip it in the bud. And that's the principle behind this. Get it in the budding stage, and it does not blossom into sin. And so God issues this command, stop sin before it starts. James explained the process of how sin develops in James 1, verses 13 to 15. He said, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When lust hath conceived. And again, the word there is epithumia. It's a word that means covet. When lust hath conceived, when covetousness hath conceived, it brings forth sin. Now Paul's explanation of this as a Pharisee was the same as Jesus described when he schooled the Pharisees on the Ten Commandments. Now, if you would, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And, and here we see Paul's struggle with a false piety. Here is a man who believed that he understood the law and he kept the law. And he believed this because he wasn't an outward offender. There wasn't really anything that he'd looked to in his life that, that showed that he was offender, an offender against God's law. And so in Romans 7, verses 7 through 11... He wrote this very troubling passage about a misunderstood piety. And this is what he says in verse number 7, beginning there. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, listen, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. And we see the word again. For without the law, sin was dead, for I was alive without the law once. 
But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Now let me just explain to you the gist of this statement as it relates to our study. In the book of Philippians, Paul said that he had all reasons to boast in his accomplishments. That he had the right heritage. He was born a Jew. He was circumcised according to the law on the exact, the exact time that he was supposed to. He said, I, I, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's one of two tribes that was still identifiable as the people of God that had not mixed with Gentile nations. And then he said concerning the law that he was from the strictest sect, that he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the holy guardians of the law. At least outwardly they looked blameless. Now in Romans he explains that before his salvation he didn't understand the law. And that's because the Pharisees didn't understand the law. They were always concerned with the externals. So outwardly, they were able to keep themselves under control to obey the law in that way, and they thought if they just restrained themselves from the acts, then they're okay. Now, if I could pause there for just a moment, there are many people in Christian churches that are like this. There are people in Baptist churches who have this strong influence where they're kept busy with the external stuff, and they're always striving to keep the outside clean, when their hearts are dead. And they've been sold this, this bill of goods that their justification with God is the external and the internal maintenance of the heart is just barely noticed. And that would perfectly describe Paul's Phariseeism. But then God regenerated his heart and showed him the truth of the commandments. And at once, it's the 10th commandment. It's the 10th commandment that just comes screaming at him. And he says, I would not have known lust I wouldn't have known that lust in the heart was a sin unless the commandment had said, Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is a heart attitude. The heart must be right. The motives must be right or it's sin. And so here's what Paul says. Uh, I was deeply religious. I was a devoted man. I thought I was free from the law's condemnation. I was okay in the support of God's law for my lifestyle. I was safe. I was secure in my knowledge. And I found out that I was wrong. And it was this tenth commandment that attacked my heart. And so he says, suddenly the law jumps up. It comes alive. And I found the truth of God's word does not support me. That the law is my condemnation. And so he says, I thought I was alive with the law once, but then this commandment killed that hope. It killed me by causing me to realize I'm dead in trespasses and sin. The commandments do not give life, is what Paul says. The commandments, he's telling us, was my death warrant. And folks, the one commandment that reached him and showed him the depravity of who he was was commandment number 10. And this is what makes it the most important part of the second half of the law. It underlies all of the problems in the law, really. Even the first half of it, all of it's a matter of the heart. So the commandment exposes and it kills even before you can do the act. Now the commandments are holy and just and good. The Word of God says that, but the commandments will not give anyone life. The commandments expose how we miserably fail. The commandments expose the heart, but they don't correct it. They don't have any power of correction. And so they're in them, there is no power for anybody to change. 
You can't read the Ten Commandments and say, oh, well, that's just and holy and good. I think I'll do that. I think I'll change my life. You don't have the power to do that. Now, the book of Galatians says the law was actually given for a different purpose, not given to change you, but it says it was a schoolmaster to bring you to the one who can, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, the word schoolmaster in Galatians is the Greek word pedagogos, and the pedagogos was a servant of the master of the masters. Um, he was in the household, and it was his responsibility to oversee the children's instruction. And some are very confused about the meaning of this, that, that when Paul says that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, what he meant was that before Christ came, it was the law that tended Israel. It's the law that took care of educating them. And how did it educate them in what? Well, you need to catch this because it is very important. Educating them in what righteousness is and what it is not. The law does not educate you in how to obtain righteousness. It educates you in how you have missed righteousness. It shows you what sin is. So we look at the commandments and we start at the top. It's a sin to worship another god. It is a sin to blaspheme God. It is a sin to misuse God's day. It is a sin to murder, to fornicate, to steal, and to lie. And the law tells you that you are a sinner, but it doesn't tell you what to do about it. Stop sinning? Well, okay, how do we do that? We're sinners by nature, by choice, by practice. We have sinned, we do sin, we will sin. And so you see the law is there always saying to them, this is a sin, this is a sin, and this is a sin. And it was the schoolmaster teaching them until Christ, the remedy for sin, came. The commandments never had the possibility of correcting the heart. And there is no new commandment that can be postulated and posted as rules for anybody's ministry that will do anything about the heart. And I don't care how many times that a person might decide to run up here to the, the steps of a platform and say, I promise to do better, fall on my knee, fall on the knees, and say, I promise to keep all the rules better. That's not going to change the heart. Now, for a few minutes, I'd like to look at this heart issue um, because it's the root cause of why we need Jesus. Now, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 7 now, uh, Jesus explained our heart problem. This is a passage about the problem of the heart. Mark chapter 7 and verse number 20. Mark 7, verse number 20. And he said, that is, Jesus said, That which cometh out of man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Out of the heart proceeds all of these evil things. Now wait a minute. Just wait a minute. You thought that the devil was the cause of all evil things. No. The devil only works with the material that we supply him. And he has plenty of that. We give him all that he needs to do his dirty work. But our heart, our own heart, is the fountain of all evil desires. Now, the Pharisees always looked at the externals. Matthew, uh, in his recording of this, says the same thing as Mark. But in Matthew, we see a little bit more detail that this discussion 
started with the Pharisees accusing the disciples of defilement because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Now, just so you know, they weren't complaining about germs. And they didn't say, well, that's a dangerous thing not to wash your hands before you eat because of all the germs. No, they didn't know anything about germs. They were concerned because washing the hands was part of their religious ceremony. And so if a person ate without washing their hands and the food that they ate was ceremonially unclean, they are, they are contaminated, and that's a violation of the law. But Jesus said, washing your hands is not your problem. That, that's not where the evil comes from. What you eat just goes through a process. It, it, it gets, goes into your stomach, it gets digested, it goes out you know where. None of that has any effect on your heart. And so therefore, sin is not because of something that you ate. That sin is in your nature, and out of your nature comes every evil desire. And this is really, what Jesus says here is enough to tell us that we would never, ever be able to have repentance and faith come out of our evil heart without God doing something with it first. That can't happen. Now, the worst thing that Jesus could have said to self-righteous Pharisees was to tell them they were evil. All the wrong in the world, all the transgressions of holy commandments, all the horrible things that people do is nobody's fault but ours. It's nothing other than a failed heart, and every one of us has that condition. But people are offended when you tell them this stuff. Uh, the disciples told Jesus, didn't you know the Pharisees were offended by what you say? Nothing has changed from that time till this. People are still offended at what Jesus says. And that's why they make up a different Jesus. Their Jesus is not the one that's in the Bible. Their Jesus is one that's tolerant. And so Jesus just opens up his arms and he says, Come on in. Everybody's welcome. Come as you are and stay as you are. There are no judgments here. No, God doesn't say come as you are because he tolerates what you are. No, God says you can come as you are despite what you are. You can believe that you're okay. And you can believe it all the way to hell because that's where Jesus said everybody's going who doesn't believe that our change of heart is in order. So you must repent. And what is it they repent of? The wickedness of your heart. And what is that? It's the violation of God's commandments. Now, every one of us has the capability of the worst imaginable crimes in our heart. And maybe you never went there. I, I'm sure people, you, you folks in here, you haven't committed the worst imaginable things that could come out of your heart. And nobody would ever welcome a baby into the world with pride and joy and say, well, my baby has the potential to be a mass murderer. But some of them do become that, don't they? And there are some that are highly educated murderers, like abortion doctors. You didn't know that was in the capacity of the human heart too? Well, it is. Millions of babies are killed every year. Oh, but we think we're good people, and so we comfort ourselves that none of this describes us. We're ready for heaven as we are. And, and certainly, we're good enough to go there. But every sentence that we read in the Bible on these issues says that's foolishness. And the discussion of the heart by the one who created man tells us a completely different story. Romans says none are good. Ephesians says all are dead in trespasses and sin. It even says we're children of wrath, that we are corrupt. That's truth. And let God be true and every man a liar because every man is. So a preacher who stands in the pulpit and says, well, you know, just don't worry about things. Smile. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, the law tells you who you are and what you are. 
And the law does not offer anybody any hope. How many times have I said this in our study of the Ten Commandments? There is no mercy in the law. The law has no mercy in it. Who ever heard of going to court and the judge says, Well, you broke the law. You've committed a terrible offense, a horrible thing, but that's okay. Because on Mondays and Fridays we throw out all guilty verdicts. We're a merciful judicial system, break all of our laws, we don't really care. Why does anybody believe that the supreme ruler of the universe, the one who is perfectly just, would do anything like that? When he says the guilty are never cleared, on what basis would anybody think otherwise? Well, the commandments are not going to let you toot your horn. If you want to shout out, then it will shout out to you exactly what it did to the Apostle Paul. You are guilty. You are a sinner. Now, in the Mark passage, we have this list of sins. There's murder, there's fornication, theft, and so on. And then it mentions covetousness. And the list is all given there to accentuate the depth of the problem. But each of those leads us back to the commandments, the same ones that Jesus' audience claimed that they kept, and Jesus could just have well summed it all up and just said, covetousness, because that's the root of all the rest. Now, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. In the second table of the law, covetousness is a problem that spurs the crimes that are committed against our neighbor. And so in this chapter of Colossians, uh, Colossians 3, Paul made an interesting connection of covetousness to the first table of the law. And this helps us nail down our proposition that the Ten Commandments is actually a comprehensive statement of conclusion for the entire law. We see it in Colossians 3, verses 4 and 5. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see this? Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, idolatry is in the first table of the law, isn't it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto me any graven image. When we study the commandments, those commandments, we, we learn that idolatry is more than carving a statue, that statue that you put in your backyard and you bow to. It's more than idols that are found in church buildings. Idolatry is a heart issue, and that happens when you put anything above God. Any desire above God is idolatry, and covetousness is the evil desire that circumvents God's right to rule. Covetousness is to desire anything more than God, and that's basically a definition of sin. What does God want, and what, does, what do I want? And when you choose you over God then you bow to the God of self, and you become the idol of worship. Now, we're concerned about Catholicism and all the idols that they have, but the truth is, you can find more idols in most evangelical churches today than you can find anywhere by just listening to the sermons that are preached. Listen to the sermons that are man-centered. Every program is designed to make us feel good about self, to promote self, whether it's health, wealth, and prosperity, or self-esteem. Evangelical churches have become peddlers of idols. And the idol is you. They teach people to worship self. Now, idolatry is the worst sin in the table of the law because it's covetousness, and covetousness is the cause of every other sin. And so when a person worships an idol, every commandment falls like dominoes. 
Everything that comes after just falls because it tears out the foundation from under the law because every law is predicated by one thing. Who is the true God? Who has the right to give us the law? And when you worship an idol, you've just destroyed the law because there's only one true living God that can give us law. So what does it mean? Well, it means the church that promotes people more than it does God destroys their morality because they teach idolatry. And so when I for, uh, desire anything that's forbidden and I want that and I fulfill that lust, then I've created an idol that attacks the living God. Now let me show you how, that, how this principle lends support to another statement that we might not get until we fully understand this. This is found in James 2.10. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Well, how's that possible? How can you be guilty of breaking the whole law by offending at only one point? Well, I think it's easier now that we understand idolatry. Choosing one sin over is uh, choosing one sin rather is choosing choosing self over God, and choosing self over God is idolatry. And as I said, that's when the dominoes begin to fall. When God is denied as the true God, there is no longer law or authority. So offend in one point and you're guilty of all. So this is the heart problem that destroys our success at keeping commandments. If our desires are wrong, then they always lead to sin. And it works with all sins, just like it does with money. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, literally all kinds of evil. So if you desire money, if there is greed, then that leads in dishonest ways of getting money. If sex is what you desire, if that stays on your mind, then out of that flows adultery. If you hate people, out of that comes murder. On and on it goes. So covetousness deals with that evil desire. It's the seed out of which grows the act. And that basically gives us the principle of the command. The cause is the heart. Now before we finish this part of the exposition, let's look just a little bit closer at the specifics of a command. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now the Puritan said that God's Spirit imposes a law on our spirit that forbids us to desire what we are forbidden to perpetrate. So the text of the command actually gives us representative prohibitions against forbidden actions. Now let me say that standing on top of this and looking down over this is what we could call the demon of discontent. Covetousness is superintended by the demon of discontent. It's the desire to have what we don't have because we're dissatisfied with what we do have. And so fundamentally, covetousness undermines God as our provider. Now I want you to save that piece of information for the next time because that's what we're going to use to get out from under this sin. And where does discontent show itself? Well, it doesn't show up with discontent with what God has because we don't think that way. Randy said something to me on the way out a few weeks ago. On that day, I was discussing my dislike of cats in my neighborhood. And he said, well, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And God owns the cats on a thousand hills. I never noticed that any of them was a house cat. God just said, you know, I'll leave them out there on a thousand hills. Maybe they'll fall off a cliff or something. But, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not concerned and I'm not jealous of God's cows or his cats. God has mansions of gold, 
but I don't covet God's mansions of gold in, in, in this way. I'm not jealous of God because we don't think that way. I'm jealous, or you may be jealous, of the guy next door. Or it may be the person in our church who has what we don't have. And that's the neighbor in the command. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, it says. Now, there, there is some discussion on what, what the original text means by house. It may mean your neighbor's household. It's more comprehensive than just the actual physical dwelling place in which he lives. In the Bible, the household is the family. It's the servants of the house. That's the people, but it also means the furnishings, the curtains, the pictures on the wall, the food that's in the refrigerator, everything that belongs to that person. There are times that we might look at an idyllic family, everything that a person has, and we wish that that was ours. We have black sheep in our families. We wish that we could trade them away and all their problems. Uh, when I was young, I remember watching my grandmother cry because one of my dad's brothers had turned to thievery. And there wasn't anything that my grandfather hated worse than a thief. Uh, if, you, if you lived and went through the dust bowl of the Depression in central Kansas, then every morsel of your possessions was precious. So they would never, ever think of stealing something from someone. And so my grandparents agonized that their child would become a thief. And there may be some of those black sheep in your family. You just want to get rid of them, and you look at the happy family, and you say, why can't that be me? And you're envious, and that goads you. That may be what it means, don't covet your neighbor's house. But more likely, for most of us, it is actually the house. We covet our neighbor's house. The people in Fountain Grove have it, and I don't. Now let me describe the evil for you. The Lord put you in this church, in this ridiculously expensive part of the U.S. to live. It's liberal you don't like the politics. I guess some of you don't, but you don't like the politics. It's a struggle to keep up with things here. If you own a house, then you know this in our area, a fixer-upper. If you can find one for $400,000, you're, you're, you're really doing well. And I think about this, that the, the house that my sister and my brother-in-law live in in Kentucky has more than twice the floor space that mine has. It has a beautiful remodeled kitchen. It has a huge family room. It has an atrium it has a private apartment uh, that I stay in when I go there. It sprawls over a large list, uh, lot with a fish pond and a gazebo. And I could buy that house two times almost for what a house cost in Santa Rosa. They have a huge lot that you literally just, just I mean, it's huge. I mean, it takes forever to mow the crazy thing. Whereas, whereas I reach out the door and I can touch somebody. When the neighbor flushes his toilet, I know it. I mean, it's, you're right there on top of the thing. So a few, months, a few months ago, I decided, well, I'm going to contact a realtor in Kentucky and get some info on houses. And I just drooled and I coveted when she sent me all these things. And, and I could just see myself there sitting on the deck, sipping my Mountain Dew and saying, that could be me in that beautiful house. But if I did that, I, I know that I'd have to leave part of my household behind because my wife ain't going. You know, there, there's there's 2,400 miles that separate us from family in Kentucky for a very good reason. But there is a bigger reason than all of that, and that is I have to forsake my discontent at unreasonable prices simply because of this. The Lord wants me here, not there. And so if I covet that bigger house and I put my desire above God's will, and that's what I end up doing, then that house becomes my idol.
So I'll warn you of this, that any hardship that you have to endure to be in God's will, do it. If God wants you in this church, you better not go. Don't covet your friend's house in the Midwest or in the East because it's so hard here, and you grab that and you make it happen without consulting God. Be sure it's the place where you're to be before you go. Well, next it says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to covet his marriage. Now, actually, this turns out would turn out to be a big problem for Israel. Before they got five miles from Sinai and 30, 30 years into the, into the journey, Moses had to give them laws for divorce. Jesus said Moses gave them that law because of their hard hearts. And I can only assume that because the covetousness that was in their hearts at the root of, that's, uh, is the root of all sin, that there were too many of them that desired their neighbor's wife. And so by the time that Jesus came, the Jews actually had a wife-swapping business. Now, if you've, if you've ever heard of swinging, and you know what that is, that's not new. The Jews did it. They're the same ones who said, we are righteous, we keep the law. They could just trade around wives, have divorces, just that... It's like that. That's all needs to be done. And they get somebody else's wife and they go on. Well, your wife or your husband is to be the person of your contentment. And the wrong desire causes a wondering eye. And that's when you look over the fence at your neighbor's wife. Things are better over there. And then the daydream turns into an affair. And many people lose everything because they coveted. They lose the house. They lose the bank account. They lose their family. They lose everything because they couldn't control their desires. Their desires are destructive. Now next is the maidservant and the manservant. Now that one's a little bit harder for us. What's that about? Well, the servants represent a man's leisure. Because the, the ancients had servants, it allowed them to spend time away from their home and their businesses. They could go to the bathhouses. They could go to the city gates and mill around there and shoot the breeze with each other. They had summer houses on the beach. So I doubt there's anybody in here. I don't know. I don't know if any of you have servants. We don't actually envy you for your servants, but we do envy your leisure. We want your vacation. Now, I'll tell you about my experience. I didn't even know that this could happen. Uh, about a year or so ago, I changed Internet providers, and I didn't know that this could happen. But when I signed up, you know, they'd sign you a new email address, the login and all those kinds of things, and... And so they gave me a new email address. I didn't know this could happen, but I chose an address that somebody had before. And uh, I, it's not supposed to happen, but evidently this person had this email address and didn't, didn't tell people that her email address had changed. So I regularly get emails for this person, and evidently she's very, very wealthy. And so I get emails from exotic hotels all around the world in places that she stayed. I get offers from spas and car companies. I even got the emails for the payments on her new BMW. And so I look at those emails and I think, why can't that be me? And, and maybe, maybe there's some way that I can just twist things around. I'll take her vacation and she can pay for it. And who would know? Who would know? Let her pick up the check. When Gary goes to Norway, China, or Mars, wherever else he plans to go, I, I say, don't go there because you caused me to sin. I covet your leisure. He can keep all the bad things that happen, the health issues and all of that. Just give me the good things that happen. And then this commandment says, don't covet his ox or his donkey. If you have those, you can keep them. I've got all the ox and the donkey that I need. 
this really actually refers to your neighbor's wealth, his livelihood. And who hasn't thought like this? Why am I in a cubicle and Charlie has a corner office with a window? Why do these things happen this way? Why am I on an assembly line and my neighbor is an investment banker? And it's easy to fall into that discontent, folks, and that stuff will drive you crazy with envy. It consumes and it's covetousness. And so the demon of discontent strikes again and he won't turn you loose. And then finally the commandment ends with anything that belongs to your neighbor, anything that you can think of, anything that you have an uncontrolled desire for, it's covetousness and covetousness is idolatry. So what are you to do? It takes a change of heart. It's always the heart that causes the problem. And really, we're all going to struggle this, uh, with this. Uh, first of all, until there is a heart change, but we are going to struggle with it all of our lives. We're not going to be complete, completely clear of this problem until we get to heaven. We need help. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so the commandments are here just keep pointing out this problem until they beat us like an old schoolmarm. It beats us until we have black eyes and bruises. And then when it's done with all of that, it hands us over to Jesus to fix it. And that's what this Tenth Commandment does. It proves that we are not righteous, that every evil desire is sin, that it's covetousness, it is idolatry. And what we'll come to next week is the cure for all of this. Now, heads up, you know what the answer is going to be. It's Jesus. It's, it's only Jesus. And we're going to be talking about sanctification. Obey God's commandments and be sanctified. Change your thoughts and end the sin of covetousness. And this is what every person in here needs. You need Jesus as your Lord and your Savior to change your heart. And it's the only way we'll ever satisfy God with these commandments. It is what Christ did for us, not what we can do for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for... Uh, your word, uh, once again, as we say every Sunday morning when we finish, we are so thankful for the word of God. We're thankful, Lord, as the Apostle Paul said, we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't even realize that we were sinners by all the things that we think are, are pretty good that we do, that we're all righteous, we can all go to heaven. And then all of a sudden, this tenth commandment shows up, thou shalt not covet. And now the heart is exposed, all the evil desires are laid bare, and everyone knows all of us know in our heart that there's sin there. We have evil thoughts, evil desires, and we've got to stop this sin of covetousness before it turns into the action. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to honor you. Pray for anyone here who's lost today that they might recognize Jesus as Savior, and then for every saved person here today, also recognize that he is Lord and Savior. We must surrender ourselves to him completely, fully, in order to overcome the sin in our life. Thank you, Lord, for this time to speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.